Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 101, Gottschalk and Adalbert. This week we'll follow the history of two men who could not be more different. On one side is Gottschalk, leader of the pagan Abodrites, who first comes to prominence as a brutal raider, killing Saxon all across Holstein in revenge for his father's killing. The other is Adalbert, son of a count, brother of the Count Palatinate of Saxony, friend and confidant of Henry III, a man who refused the offer of becoming Pope for his ambition to convert all of Scandinavia and the Baltic. These two men formed an alliance against the Saxon magnates in general and the Billungs, Dukes of Saxony in particular. It's a story of greed and violence of Christian conversion and attempts to break out of a strategic gridlock. But before we start, let me tell you that the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Jay Lawton, Tracy Jay and Roger who've already signed up. And then a special thanks to Paul Hünermund whose generosity and regular support on Twitter is much appreciated. Last week we did a recap of the Saxon war that pitted the Emperor Henry IV against the Saxon magnates led by Otto von Nordheim. This story you may remember from season 2 and we will follow up on it next week. But before we do that I want to talk about the second strain in our narrative, the fate of the Wends, the Slavic peoples who live between the Elbe and the Oder River, specifically their federations, the Abodrites and the Lutitsi. We have met the Abodrites before. They are a federation of several Slavic tribes who live in the March of the Billungs, across modern-day Holstein and Mecklenburg. They had played a leading role in the Great Slav Uprising when their leader Mistivoy brought his troops up to and then through the gates of Hamburg, burning the city and all its wooden churches. According to the chronicles of Adam of Bremen, the leadership of the Abodrites, including Mistivoy, had accepted Christianity but were provoked into revolt by the oppressive tributes the Billungs extracted as well as their refusal to accept them as equals and marry their daughters to them, as they had done with the Poles. After the uprising of 983, Mistivoy seems to have returned to at least nominal Christianity. We do know that his son and successor Udo was officially Christian, though the chronicler Helmut of Bozar describes him as lax in his religious devotion. Honestly, can't blame him. Udo's son was Gottschalk, born sometime between the year 1000 and 1015. Young Gottschalk, was brought up in a monastery in Lüneburg. We do not know what role the academic reputation of this establishment played in Udo's decision to hand over his oldest son to preceptors in the hometown of his occupier. In 1028 or 1031, Gottschalk's father was stabbed in the back by a Saxon in his retinue. Gottschalk flees from his monastery, sheds Christianity and takes over his father's job, goes out for revenge. For years he devastates what is today Holstein, so that in the end only the garrisons in Itzehoe and Böckelnburg remain standing. In the end, he is captured by the Duke of Saxony. But the Duke releases him after the two men had found an agreement. What the content of that agreement was is unclear, but most likely a combination of a very large payment and a promise to go into exile. Gottschalk went to Denmark and joined King Knut in his endeavour to gain the crown of England. He stayed in Denmark for almost 15 years and got involved in these various wars of succession that followed the death of the great Knut. It is during this period that the Abodrites show up on the Danish border. What exactly they were doing there is unclear. 
Some argue there were in migration, others that they had taken part in the wars of succession in Denmark. In what appears to have been an exceptionally brutal battle, the Slavs are beaten and allegedly 15,000 Aborites lay dead on the field. Their leader Ratibor fell in that battle and his seven sons were caught to perish in Danish captivity. In the battle, King Magnus of Denmark and Norway, the son of Saint Olaf, wielded his father's battle axe, curiously named Hel after the Nordic goddess of death. Nominally, the Abodrites had been allied with Svein Estridsen, frenemy of King Magnus and one of the various claimants for the Danish throne, which makes it likely that Gottschalk was involved in this affair. We hear that he later married a daughter of Svein Estridsen, who by now had managed to become King of Denmark. By 1047, Gottschalk is definitely back in the land of the Abodrites, where, probably with the help of his father-in-law, he had regained his position as the leader of the Federation. By now, Gottschalk had converted back to Christianity. Not just that, he had become a strong promoter of the Christian faith. He had founded monasteries in all the major towns, had allowed new bishoprics in Mecklenburg and Ratzeburg to be erected, until the whole land was, as Adam von Bremen enthusiastically says, full of churches and the churches full of priests. Which begs the question, why he had done so? Sure, King Knud and his court were Christian, and they would probably have demanded some nominal adherence to the new religion, as did King Magnus and Svein Estridsson. But in a world where the saintly king of Norway calls his battle-axe hell, this could only be a thin veneer of Christianity. Gottschalk's activity once he's back in charge of the Abodrites is different. He means it. He's going to great lengths to convert his people. Chroniclers report that he joined the missionaries and he translated the sermons into the language of his people. Now, if you leave aside the possibility of a Damascus moment experienced in a Saxon prison cell, there might be another explanation. Imagine you're a pagan Slavic ruler and you look at your list of long-term options. Well, isn't a very long list. So, option one is to keep doing what you're doing. Which means, at regular intervals, the local markgraf will come round and demand an outrageous amount in tribute. When you refuse, the markgraf will come back with an army, devastate your land, steal everything that isn't nailed down, take your women and children away as slaves. Or you can accept the tribute, which requires you to gather everything that isn't nailed down yourself and hand it over yourself. And you will still be raided by a Saxon army. Option two is to accept conversion. But that means you now have to pay the bishops and archbishops on top of the margraf. And even then you may find that the local rulers find ways to provoke you into fighting anyway. You remember Grandpa Mistevoy who was called a dog by Margraf Dietrich? And then you look at Poland and you realize that life isn't fair. The Poles been pagan 70 years ago, now look at them. There are churches everywhere, they have their own archbishop, their king has forced old Emperor Henry II to sign a humiliating peace agreement. And even though right now Poland is a mess, still, their nobility is linked by marriage into the highest levels of the Saxon aristocracy, even into the imperial family. If you can set aside your religious scruples, that is where you want to go. But how? Just paying lip service to the new gods is something the powerful Danes and Norwegians can afford, but that's not cutting the mustard out here in the Wendish lands. The solution has to be a close alliance with the one force that provides a counterweight to the Saxon magnates, the Church, and most specifically the almighty Archbishop of Hamburg-Bremen, Aradat. 
Adalbert, you may remember, was a close ally of Henry III, who saw his role in being the Patriarch of the North, bringing Christianity to Scandinavian and all the shores of the Baltic Sea. Gottschalk is likely to have met Adalbert before he returned to his homeland, since Adalbert had been a regular visitor to the Danish court. The return of Gottschalk may have been supported, if not even conceived, by Adalbert. Adalbert and Gottschalk worked closely together. The new bishoprics in Ratzeburg and Mecklenburg became part of the Archdiocese of Hamburg, and Adalbert put competent men into those positions, including a man called John, who had come from Scotland, where he had been Bishop of Glasgow and possibly of Orkney. I mention him because he will reappear again a little later. Tagging on to Adalbert looked like a winning move in 1047. Adalbert was already hugely powerful at court. He had accompanied the emperor on his journey to Rome, which included the famous Council of Sutri, where the emperor deposed three popes and replaced them with German bishops. Adalbert was even offered the job, but refused, claiming that he was needed for missionary activity in the north. Smart move, since the man who took the job, Sutger, bishop of Bamberg, died within months from the unhealthy climate in Rome. If he wasn't at court, Adalbert's main area of operations was Scandinavia. Adam von Bremen describes irregular interactions with the kings of Norway, of Sweden and of Denmark. This is a period of constant coming and going on the Scandinavian thrones, though more often than not the going party wasn't moving under its own propulsion anymore. Adalbert seems to have managed these political upheavals deftly and held onto his position as the leader of the Scandinavian church. Now let us move on to the year 1056 then. Two things happen. One, the Emperor Henry III dies, and two, the Lutitsi achieve a major success destroying the army of William Markgraf of the Northern Marches. We mentioned that in the last episode. The first of these events is a major problem for Adalbert, since Henry III was his great sponsor and as always in a regime change the old advisers are chucked out. The latter is a real issue for Gottschalk, who was trying to prove that a former pagan Slavic tribe could become an integral part of the empire. Ah, and if you remember last episode, it was a problem for the boy King Henry IV, who was nearly killed over it. Now the next thing we hear is that a year after the great success, the Lutitsi begin to fight amongst themselves. The Lutitsi are not a peoples in themselves, but a federation of several smaller groups, namely the Ridari, the Tolensi, the Cassini and the Sisipani. No, you do not need to remember any of those. The Cassini and Sisipani fell out with the Ridarii Tolensi on the other. We do not know exactly what drove the disagreement. Some have argued that the Ridarii had been some sort of elite amongst the Lutizi, and this was basically a revolt from below. It could also have been a falling out over strategy, now that they had beaten the empire and the throne was occupied by a child. Or it was some clever undercover work by Gottschalk and Adalbert. All that is fact is, that the two sides wended it hammer and tongs. Adam von Bremen tells us of three separate campaigns that always ended with a defeat for the Ridari. The Ridari, in their distress, went for help to the most motley of crews. They first asked Gottschalk, Prince of the Arbodrites, then they asked Sven Estritzen, King of the Danes, and Duke Bernard of Saxony. All three of them are happy to help. So happy, they bring along a colossal force that easily overwhelms the brave Sisipani. Thousands of them die and the slaughter only ends when the defeated Sisipani pay a fine of 15,000 pounds of silver. 
Adam von Bremen summarizes the events as follows. Our soldiers returned home triumphant. There was no mention of Christianity. All they cared for was plunder. Adam von Bremen goes back to this again and again. In his view, it was only the greed of the Saxons that stopped progress of the missionaries. For Gottschalk, this was at least outwardly a success. Fighting alongside his father-in-law, the king of Denmark, and his lord, Bernard Billung, the duke of Saxony, against the pagans, make him out as a Christian prince and reliable ally. The initial worry that the rebellion would force his strategy to unravel was put to rest. Gottschalk plows on in his project to convert his people and become a proper prince. Adabert, meanwhile, had other matters to take care of. We're now in the year 1057 and the imperial government under the regent empress Agnes is starting to get into heavy weather. The first year Agnes could rely on the Pope, Victor II, who had been the last of her husband's appointees. Victor had been a relative of Henry III and fiercely loyal to the royal family. But Victor II passed away in that fateful year 1057 and the inexperienced French empress was stumbling from one political mistake to the next. In 1061, she backed the Bishop of Parma as Pope Honorius II. Honorius had been part of a backlash against the progress of church reform. He and other prelates found the lifestyle restrictions proposed by the reformers around Peter Damien utterly cumbersome. Supporting the right of bishops to have mistresses and enjoy their wealth went completely against the grain of popular opinion. And when Agnes sided with the counter-reformers, the empire lost the lead in church reform which is one of the reasons her son Henry IV ended up in the snow before the walls of Canossa. Now concerned about the implications of that decision, the Archbishop of Cologne, Anno, intervened. He had the boy King Henry IV kidnapped by luring him onto the ship he had moored in the Rhine River. Henry IV tried to flee by jumping overboard and nearly drowned. Child secured, Anno took over the government and formed a regency council, on which Arabert of Hamburg was another prominent member. Arabert and Anno did not like each other one bit, but they shared a love for money and power. The chroniclers, even those who were on Arabert's side, tell tales of corruption and greed. Arabert and Anno plundered the royal treasury, passing wealthy abbeys between each other. Arabert's power increased with every year Henry IV grew older. Henry IV had never forgiven Anno the kidnapping, and that made it easy for Arabert to gain the young king's confidence. The chronicler Bruno claims that Arabert had encouraged the young king to give in to all his most base instincts. Henry supposedly always had two or three mistresses on the go, he lusted after his courtier's wives, and he even tried to get one of his guys to seduce the empress he had planned to divorce. Now, that latter guy, by the way, was caught and beaten half to death by the enraged Berta. Arabert, instead of challenging his behaviour, is supposed to have reassured the king that he could always confess later, and be absolved, and that he would be a fool not to give in to all his urges. Whether any of these stories are true is unclear, but historians are increasingly of the view that Henry IV was definitely more fun-loving than his saintly forebearers. What is very much true, though, is that Arabert gained an ever stronger hold on the young king, to the point that any of the nobles saw him as a de facto dictator. Even the Hamburg-based chroniclers Adam von Bremen and Helmut von Bosa took a dim view of Adalbert's entanglement in high politics and his sheer limitless ambition and greed. What might have gone down really badly with the aristocracy was his personal behaviour. In particular, in his later years, he became too big for his shoes. 
applicants, even the most powerful ones, would have to wait as much as a week before they are admitted into his presence, and would later find out that Adalbert had made fun of them at dinner with his friends. As Adam von Bremen said, he shed all his virtues he once possessed and brought the hatred of the magnates upon him. At the beginning of 1066, the opposition to Adalbert had firmed up to the point they were seeking an open confrontation. The king had spent the last three months in Gosna, mainly because the princes, including the archbishops of Mainz and Cologne, refused to entertain the royal court. That's not only a major logistical problem, as the large retinue had literally eaten every morsel of food within the vicinity of Gosna, but it was also an insult bordering on rebellion. And the princes went one step further when they called an assembly at Trebor, something so far has only ever happened upon the invitation of the king. The purpose of this meeting was to get rid of Adalbert, as nearly all the princes and bishops of the kingdom were unanimous in their hatred and conspired that he should perish. When he hears about this, Henry IV, Adalbert and some of his followers race to Trebor to confront the princes. Tietmar reports an event on route to Trebor where the royal guards forced the inhabitants of a village to hand over food. The villagers resisted and the commander of the royal bodyguards was severely wounded. He was brought before the abbot of Hersfeld, who refused to grant the man the last rites before he had passed over some property the abbot had claimed was his. If a mere abbot can treat a man under royal protection like that, it does not bode well for an archbishop hated by all the princes. Upon arrival in Trebor, the assembled magnates tell Henry IV he has a simple choice. Sack Adalbert or resign the throne. Henry IV is still a teenager at this point, so he twisted and turned and hesitated to make a decision. Adalbert advised the king to pack up the insignia of kingship, flee back to Gosla in the night. Orders are given to load the treasury onto the wagons, but all that made such a noise that the others woke up and stopped the proceedings. Guards were posted so that nothing untoward could happen in the night. The next morning the magnates confronted Adalbert and it was only by intervention of the king that he wasn't struck dead right there. That was the end of Adalbert's time in the limelight. He did beat a hasty retreat to his diocese, protected by the few soldiers the impecunious king could spare. But Adalbert's ordeal wasn't over, though. As his power was broken, the eternal enemy of the archbishops, the Duke of Saxony, came out for their pound of flesh. Magnus Billung, at this point only son of the reigning duke, took his soldiers and laid siege to the city of Bremen, where Adalbert had sought refuge. The threat was such that Adalbert was forced to sign an agreement that handed over almost two-thirds of the assets of the archbishopric to the Billungs. Adalbert was then allowed to leave Bremen and fled for Goslar. The fall of Adalbert brought his entire political construct to collapse, including Gottschalk. Led by a pagan man called Kruto, the Abodrites rose up against the Christian Gottschalk and had him murdered. And as was appropriate, he was murdered together with a priest, on the altar of a church. This kicked off a general persecution of Christians, in particular the priests. In Ratzeburg, two monks were stoned. Gottschalk's wife, the daughter of the king of Denmark, was pulled out of her palace and dragged naked through the town of Mecklenburg. But the worst ordeal was reserved for John, the Scotsman who had come down to be bishop of Oldenburg. He was hauled from town to town across the lands of the Abodrites and Lutizzi until he arrived at the religious center of the Wends, a place called Retra. Tietmar von Merseburg describes the place as follows. There, Holy of Holies was a triangular building with three doors, built deep inside a holy forest. 
The building can be entered by all through two of the three doors. The third door is reserved to a special cast of priests. It opens onto a path that leads to a lake that, according to Tietma, was utterly dreadful in appearance. The outer walls of the building were adorned by marvellous sculpted images of the gods and goddesses. Inside, in the centre, was a skillfully made shrine that was standing on a foundation composed of the horns of animals. There were full-sized freestanding sculptures of the gods, each inscribed with their name and clothed with helmets and armour. Their senior god, Tietma, calls Svarochik, though other sources call him Radogast, the same name as the place. The Lutizi had a priest class whose role was to preside over the drawing of the lots to make major decisions. The process was divided in two parts. Part one, the priest would throw the lot and divine from how they lay what they believed the correct decision was to be. Next, they would bring in the sacred enormous horse that would walk over the lots and thereby declare its reading of the omens. Only when the priests and the horse agreed would the decision be implemented. If they disagreed, the proposal is rejected. And if the omen suggested that internal warfare was imminent, a giant boar would emerge from the lake. All that again is what we are told by the Christian chroniclers, not by a Slavic one. The Temple of Retra was not the only one, but the most sacred. There were other religious centers for the different tribes in the Federation. These tribes would take their decisions, namely about war and peace, jointly and unanimously. Unanimous the decision might be, but there was a rule that anyone who opposes the decision in the assembly was to be beaten with rods until he agrees, and if he opposes after the assembly, he loses everything, either by burning or confiscation. Part of the decision over war and peace was to determine what offers have to be made to the gods in case of a successful completion of the campaign. We do not know whether what happened next had been the result of such a pledge. Adam von Bremen tells us that when Bishop John of Oldenburg refused to renounce his faith, he had first his hands and then his feet cut off. They then decapitated him and threw his body into a ditch by the road. The head was planted on a spike and then sacrificed to the god Radegast, allegedly the deity in charge of hospitality. After these atrocities, the Abodrites consolidated again, this time under the leadership of Kruto, the man who had led them in their rebellion. The Duke of Saxony spent the next 12 years trying to suppress Kruto, but this time the Slavs were better trained and better equipped. These campaigns failed again and again. Things got so bad that the Duke of Saxony was becoming the butt of jokes about his inability to defeat the Slavs. Seemingly, there was a third option for Slavic leaders. Gottschalk's sons and wife survived the carnage. The older one, called Butivoy, allied with the Duke of Saxony and attempted to regain his father's position. This attempt ended in the picturesque city of Plön. Plön is surrounded by lakes, only accessible by a land bridge. Butivoy had come to the town with an army of auxiliaries provided by Duke Magnus of Saxony. To his surprise, he found the city empty of enemy soldiers. Though he was warned that this could be a trap, he stayed the night in Plön. By morning he found the land bridge occupied by a vast army of Aborites. A quick survey revealed that the retreating army had stripped the stores of all foodstuff and even worse, they had taken away all boats. Butivoy's position was hopeless. He negotiated terms with Kruter, who allowed him and his men to go, provided they leave their weapons and precious items behind. 
As there came out rumors swirled around the camp that Butivoy's men had raped the women left behind in Plön during their short stay. The Abudrites got so enraged they murdered the defenseless Butivoy and his men before Kruto could stop them. Gottschalk's wife and the other son, Henry, had fled to Denmark, where they had family. Henry was more successful than his brother. With Danish assistance, he forced Kruto to let him back in as a leader of part of the Abudrites Federation in 1093. Kruto was at that point quite old, but still wasn't willing to give up neither his throne nor other pleasures of life. He had recently married a young lady called Slavina. According to Helmut von Bosa, this lady was young and of a fun-loving disposition, and clearly not interested in spending the rest of her life with a decrepit old man. Or she may have acted out of self-preservation, since some of the pagan Slavic tribes practiced sati, the burning of widows upon the death of their husbands. Either way, when Slavina heard that Kruto planned to kill Henry, she warned him. Henry decided to get on the front foot, invited Kruto to a feast, plied him with immense amounts of drink until the old man was barely able to stand, and as the old lord stumbled to his bedchamber, one of Henry's Danes split his head with an axe. That elevated Henry the prince of Abodritus, and he married Slavina. The other Slavic tribes, presumably the Lutizzi and some disaffected Abodrites, raised an army to unseat Henry. However, Henry prevailed with the help of Magnus Billung at the Battle of Schmillau in 1093. With that, Henry became a vassal of Duke Magnus of Saxony. He chose Lubice as his main residence, a place we now know better by its modern name, Lübeck. Under his rule, the Abodrites flourished, the economy improved and it seems the tributes had become more acceptable. Though Henry was a Christian, he did not force his people to convert, as his father had done. Given the Dukes of Saxony had no interest in converting the locals, the pressure to do so must have been a lot less than when the leader of the Abodrites was a vassal of the Archbishop of Hamburg-Bremen. Henry also remembered his father's demise in the pagan revolt. So he gave his people religious freedom. They no longer journeyed to the temple at Retra, where Bishop John Scotus had found his end, because that had been destroyed sometime around these decades. Instead, the center of pagan faith was now the sanctuary of Cap Arcona on the island of Rügen. It is around the time of Henry, whose reign went on until 1127, that the policy towards the marches is changing. Instead of raiding the lands to the east for plunder and slaves, the Saxon leadership is encouraging economic growth and colonization. This is a decision with far, far-reaching consequences. We'll hear more about that, the Abodrites, Henry and his descendants, as we go along. But not next week. But not next week. Next week, we catch up with the high politics of the empire, the role the Saxons play in the investiture controversy, and how the duchy becomes semi-independent. I hope you will listen in again. You may not believe it, but if all goes to plan, I will still be somewhere in the Atlantic. If you want to follow along, you can do so on a website and app called Marine Traffic. Search for sailing vessel Purple Rain under French flag. Being away has a number of implications apart from working like a dervish to get enough episodes recorded to cover the time. It also means that my marketing efforts trickle down to zero. That is where you, my listeners, come in. I was wondering whether you would be prepared to help promote the show. Why not send a link to the history of the Germans to a friend or family member who might be interested? Write a comment on one of my older posts, or even write your own post on social media. That would be massively appreciated, 
as would obviously signing up on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>